I'm going to direct our attention to Psalm 19, where David would write of the works of God as well as the Word of God. And he says in Psalm 119 that the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. David would write, day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And then he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. And he concludes by saying, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Would you bow with me as we bow our heads before the Lord, closing our eyes so that we may open ourselves up before Him. Father, we stand before You and come before You in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come in His name, we want to honor our God, our Father. We pray that the words out of our mouths and the meditations in our hearts would be acceptable in Your sight, for You are our rock and our Redeemer. Help us to focus our minds upon You now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. James Walker is with Watchman Fellowship. He has been the president of that organization since 1994, and the Lord has used him greatly. As you know, he has spoken on critical areas in our nation, in our culture, and in the Christian life. He resides in Arlington, Texas with his wife, Jimmy. They have three grown children. He has eight grandchildren. He's left them behind to be with us today. So with that, let's give him a warm welcome again to Colonial Baptist Church, please. Well, good morning. It is great to be back with you guys. I've been looking forward to this. Didn't know I'd have Sunday morning, but that's fine, too. I'm, I'm very much excited about being able to share with you. The title of my message this morning is Our Mission Building Bridges. And I think it's, it's incumbent upon everyone who names the name of Christ, every church, every Christian family, every Christian individual, we need to be in the bridge building business. By what that I mean, we need to be blazing a path. We need to be you know, placing those stepping stones in, in, in their proper place to help people make a transition to come to Jesus Christ from whatever background they have. Now, our ministry, for those who remember from past years being with you, is all about that. At Watchman Fellowship, we're about building bridges. We're a missionary ministry, apologetics ministry, focusing on primarily on new religious movements, cults, the occult, world religions, controversial doctrines and practices, and we reach out to help people who don't share our worldview, who don't believe in the the same basic beliefs we do of the Bible as being the Word of God, to help them to come to know the true gospel message and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But we also train and equip Christians in this bridge-building endeavor, And, and in fact, we have some great tools and resources along those lines 
Uh, we have a, a, a tool called a free profile. Every other month for the last 17 years, our ministries produced a four-page document, a briefing, if you will, called the profile. Every other month, we deal with a different critical topic that's facing today's Christian, uh, and we make that free, and some of you have gotten it in past years. If you'd like to renew that for the next year, or if you'd like to get that for the first time, you can go online at watchman.org. You need to add slash subscribe, watchman.org slash subscribe, and we can do that as well online. We have also have a great uh, new Defend the Faith DVD library, three of our most important new DVDs, one on how to recognize a cult, one on Islam, one on Mormonism. That's available as well. We have other resources that we're constantly producing But the best resource we can ever have on being able to understand the challenge that we face in bridge building and also insight on being able to do that effectively is always, of course, going to be the Word of God. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts 17. We're going to see a classic lesson today in bridge building. We're going to see the Apostle Paul go into an almost impossible situation and effectively share the gospel message to to, uh, plant those stepping stones, to build that bridge. And we're going to look at Acts 17. We're going to start in verse 16, but let me give you a little background before we start reading. What's happened here is the Apostle Paul's on a missionary journey. He and his companions, Timothy, Silas, and others, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, they are going from city to city, and they're sharing the, the essentials of the Christian faith. Basically, what they're sharing is this that all people have sinned against a holy God. But God loves people and sent Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to die on the cross as an atonement, as a substitute, as a payment for the sins that we've committed. And that Jesus, after dying on the cross, was buried and resurrected, was raised victoriously, as we just sang, from the grave, He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he offers us a relationship with God. He offers us forgiveness of sin if we repent, turn from our sin, and put our faith and trust in Christ. And as they would share that message, New Testament churches would form. People would believe. But also what sometimes would happen would conflict would arise. And that happened earlier in chapter 17 of the book of Acts. That happened in Thessalonica. In the city of Thessalonica, there's quite a bit of opposition. Berea, the people responded, but again, there was more conflict. So what's happened right before we read is the apostle Paul and the rest of his team have split up. And Paul has gone by himself into the city of Athens, and he's waiting for the rest of the team. Now, before I read verse 16, you need to get a picture of Athens. Athens was unlike any other city Paul had been. Athens was the spiritual vortex. It was the spiritual capital of Greek and Roman mythology. The schools of philosophy were all centered in Athens. Now, at one point in history past, centuries earlier, Athens had also been the geopolitical, the the, uh, military center of the known world. That day had long passed. Rome was now the military might, was the political power of the known world. However, Athens retained its crown as being the center for spirituality for the era. These are where the philosophers came. This is where all the thinking, the Greek mythology, the pagan. In fact, you, you can think of it this way. As Mecca is to the Muslim, as Jerusalem is to the Jew, as Salt Lake City is to the Mormon, 
So is Athens to the pagan, to the Greek and Roman mythology of that day. So it's into this environment Paul comes, and I want you to see in verse 16, it's going to start with an observation. Often it starts as we are observing, and it starts with an observation, Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, he's talking about the rest of his team. He's waiting for them, but notice this, he's not waiting at the hotel. He's not watching ESPN, He's actually getting out and observing what's going on in the city. While he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing. It starts with an observation. He was observing that the city was full of idols. The whole city was given over to idolatry. Now, Every city Paul went to had idols. I mean, there were idols in Thessalonica and Berea earlier here in the chapter. There were, there were idols even in Jerusalem, but not like Athens. The whole culture has turned on this Greek mythology and the belief in the pantheon of gods on Mount Olympus. And the whole area, the tourism, the culture, it was all based on idolatry and Greek mythology. And so unlike any other place, this city, like un- unlike any other, it was given over to idols. In fact, one contemporary historian said that in the first century, it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a person. This is what Paul finds himself walking into. And the city was given over to idolatry. When when Paul carefully observed this, notice what happened. The observation leads to motivation. If you're taking notes, this is going to motivate Paul. Paul is going to get very, very interested in being able to reach this city. Observation often leads to motivation. And uh, so verse 17, here's what happened. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. The word reasoning that we have here in our Bibles is taken from a Greek word which has the root dialogue. He was entering into a discourse, a dialogue with the people at the, at the synagogue, both the Jews and the converts to Judaism, the, uh, the God-fearers, the God-fearing Gentiles. Now, this was not unusual for Paul because this was basically his modus operandi. What Paul would usually do is they would go to a new city. He would first go to the synagogue. Now, it was natural for him to go there because he shared so much in common with the Jews at the synagogue. Look at what they had in common. Paul himself was Jewish. He understood. He was raised. His education was in the, in the school of Gamaliel. He was, he was a, a Pharisee. This was his background. These were his people. They thought like him. Hey, and look at the commonality. They shared the same scripture. He believed the Old Testament. They, as Christians, they believe the Old Testament. The Jewish people believe the Old Testament. They both believe in the same God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's quite normal for him to go into the synagogue when he go to a city. That's a great place to reach people. But you need to understand, this is not Jerusalem. This is Athens. And if you're going to reach the people, the Athenians, if you're going to reach that culture, you're not going to just be able to go to the synagogue. So Paul recognizes, so he not only went to the synagogue, look at verse 17, and, in other words, in addition, and, look at this, in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. These are people who don't attend the synagogue on the Sabbath. These are the pagans. This is out in the marketplace. He went out to the gates of the city. He went out where, in the, to where the business was conducted. He went out to where the philosophers were. He went out to the agora. He went out to the, he went to the shopping center. He showed up at Starbucks. 
He went to where the people were because if you're going to reach the Athenians, you can't just stay at the synagogue. You got to be out where they are. Why? Well, it all started with an observation, and that observation leads to motivation. I'm very fascinated with with, uh, first century Athenian culture and history. But you know, I'm a lot more interested in, in rather than uh, Athenian spirituality, I'm, I'm more interested in American spirituality today. I'll, I want to, if you're taking notes, I want to take, I encourage you to take some notes down at this point. I want to give you a glimpse of American spirituality today. Why? I'm convinced, like Paul, when he took just a few minutes to look at his city, look at the city where he was in Athens, it motivated him to get out and start dialoguing with people. And I think perhaps if we get a little picture of where we are spiritually, we're likewise going to be motivated. I'll be motivated. You'll be motivated. Part of my job as president of Watchman Fellowship, as an apologetics ministry, my job is to have my thumb on the pulse of American spirituality. Where are we as a nation right now, spiritually? Where were we 10 years ago? More importantly, where are we going to be five years from now, spiritually? Let me give you a glimpse of American spirituality. I want to start with some good news. Good news. Interest in Jesus is at an all-time high. Now, a lot of the critics were saying that by the 21st century, Jesus would be old school, nobody would be interested in Jesus. That's not true. People are talking about Jesus. The cover stories of news magazines, Time, U.S. News and World Report, Life, other magazines have cover stories. I have to be careful because oftentimes when you read the articles that go with those stories, they're promoting a Jesus much different than the Jesus we know. They're talking about a misunderstood Jewish rabbi who was later mythologized by his followers. They make a distinction between the Jesus of faith that the Christians believe in and the real Jesus, the Jesus of history, who uh, never performed miracles and never rose from the dead. So you have to be careful. But the good news is, at least people are interested. This is a great talking point. You can talk about Jesus. Interest in Jesus is at all-time high. Some more good news. This is from a 2009 Barna poll. Did you know that 9 out of 10 Americans own a Bible? This is amazing. After all these years, the Bible is still a bestseller. It still ranks high on Amazon and new translations and study Bibles. You can go to Barnes & Noble. The Bible is still a bestseller. That's the end of the good news part. Let me tell you part of the rest of it. The same Barna survey discovered that while Americans own Bibles, only six out of ten Americans believe the Bible is totally accurate in all the uh, facts that it teaches. So here's what I'm seeing. People own Bibles, that's good, but here they don't know if they have the confidence in what the Word says anymore. So this is a, this is a spiritual background that we're in. This is the way it is today. Now, the same survey, Barna 2009, also showed that 43% of Americans believe that the Bible, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon all teach the same spiritual truth. Now, this, this is challenging. This is, a, this is a, not a Bible Belt culture anymore. I don't know that it ever was, but it certainly is not anymore in America, even in the South. And so what we're seeing here is a challenge of American spirituality today. Let me shift gears and talk about the occult. Where are we at in in the area of the paranormal? There is a revival going on right now in America in this whole area of the occult, psychics, the paranormal. Uh, For example, this comes from a Gallup research poll. In fact, it's two polls. Gallup did a survey in 1990 at the latter part of the 20th century, but they repeated the survey in the first part of the 21st century, 15 years later in 2005. Look at what happened when it comes to the area of the occult. Did you know today that 
Uh, Over half, 55% of Americans believe in psychic healing. We believe as Americans, 55% of us, that there are latent supernatural powers in the human mind that you can merely think thoughts and actually heal disease using the supernatural power of your mind. Now, look at where we were back in 1990. It's a 9% jump in just 15 years in this area of the paranormal. Talking to the dead. Uh, One in five Americans, 21%, believe that they can communicate with dead people. This is popularized by the psychics, some of the television programs that are very popular right now. The Bible warns about the practice of what the Bible calls necromancy or communication with the dead. Yet we see the statistics show in the area of the occult, this is a growth area, a 3% jump in in a 15-year period, 21%. Now, most Americans become involved with the occult. The way the entrance into the occult for most Americans is the practice of astrology. That's a common denominator in a lot of the papers, a lot of the uh, uh, websites about this. So a lot of Americans get involved. This comes from a different poll, a 2003 Harris poll. Uh, to conduct 2003 indicated that almost one in three Americans, 31%, believe in the horoscope. They believe in astrology and the power of the zodiac. They believe that our fate is determined depending on when exactly we were born and how the planets were aligned. That's shocking. In a modern culture that we're living in, 31% of Americans. The same Harris poll broke down the demographics on this. Apparently, there's a gender gap when it comes to the paranormal and specifically astrology. 31% of Americans, but it breaks down this way, 25% of men, one in four men believe in astrology, and 36% of women. So there's a gender gap, but I'm more interested in the study in not the gender gap, but the generation gap. Watch this. If you're a senior in America today, if you're 65 or older, only 17% of us believe in astrology. But if you're a younger American defined as 25 through 29, a whopping 43% of Americans believe in astrology. Now, uh, folks, why is this important? We're looking at American future right now. The future of American spirituality is the young people. This is the direction that we're headed as a nation right now. This is what it is. And this is American spirituality today. Shift gears. Let me talk about Mormonism for a moment. A couple of years ago when I was here at Colonial, I was uh, able to share my story. I'm a former fourth-generation Mormon. Uh, Baptized at the age of eight years old. I did baptism for the dead in the Salt Lake City Temple, held the priesthood. But I was fortunate I had some Christian friends who laid some stepping stones for me, built a relationship with me. They uh, created a bridge, if you will, that God used to take me from Mormonism to Christianity. Now, you need to understand that I'm the exception to the rule. The the Mormon church is growing very rapidly right now. Uh, They have over 60,000 full-time missionaries around the world. And the Mormon church has reported that they are baptizing into the Mormon church 282 Baptists every seven days. And that's just the Baptists. This is, hey, I'm showing you American spirituality. I'm hoping that the observation is going to lead you to motivation, that this is going to encourage you. Jehovah's Witnesses, we see in a recent annual report, the Watchtower uh, reported that 7.1 million Jehovah's Witnesses went door-to-door that year. That's 7.1 million missionaries. They uh, spent 1.4 billion hours, with a B, billion hours in their work, resulting in the baptism of over a quarter of a million new converts. Let me talk about world religions for just a moment. American spirituality today, what about Islam? 
Did you know that Islam is growing very rapidly in the United States right now? In fact, some of the experts are now saying that within 25 years, we will have more Muslims in America than we have Methodists. Now, there's reasons for the growth. I want to go over that this evening with you, but let me just give you a number right now. Between the years 1990 and 2004, Islam grew by 109% in America. Now, let me say, I'm going to address that this evening at 6 o'clock. I want to encourage you to be back. I'm going to be sharing a crash course on Islam, what I feel like every Christian needs to know in the area of Islam. It's going to affect every family here. Islam will. In one way or another, every family here is going to be affected by this. And every Christian must have a minimum competency in this area of Islam, what every Christian needs to know about Islam. I'm going to address the growth and why. I'm also going to address the whole issue of jihad. What about jihad? We're at the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. What's that all about? But most importantly this evening, I'm going to talk about some stepping stones. I'm going to be talking about how can we share in an effective and loving way with a Muslim neighbor or friend or someone at work or at school that we know who's Muslim. Practical, how can we some do's and don'ts on sharing our faith? That's going to be this evening at 6 o'clock. Let me also say... Almost certainly we will have some Muslim guests. Rarely do I speak on the subject that we don't have Muslims come if I'm talking on the Quran or on Islam. And I, I have never had anything but a good experience. I've never had any kind of anyone upset or any anger, anything like that. I would not expect anything like that. The Muslims are gener- generally very gracious and very curious. I'm just saying this, if we do have Muslim guests, I want to encourage you to be praying for our Muslim guests. I I want to be able to share the gospel in a way that God can use that message to touch the hearts of our Muslim friends and neighbors. So please be praying for any Muslim that may be here this evening. One more statistic on American spirituality today that I I, I need to share with you, and this this one number I think disturbs me more than any, and it deals with this whole area of pluralism. Is Jesus really the only way, or are there many paths, many ways by which you can get to God? This comes from a February 2009 Pew Research Forum. They discovered that 65% of Americans currently believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. Christianity is not the only religion. Many religions will lead a person to eternal life. That is 65% of Americans. But look at this number. This is the one that disturbs me. 47% of evangelical Christians now agree with that. 47. Half of us as Christians now say, yes, uh, Jesus is our way, but there are other religions, other paths that can get you to God as well. Now, folks, not only is that not true, you know, the, the Bible is too clear on this, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. But let me say this. If we lose in this area, if we lose this biblical principle, then why in the world would we ever want to share our faith with others? We've lost in missions. We've lost in evangelism. If you believe that there's other ways to get to God, you will never be involved in the evangelism explosion of this church uh, program of this church. You'll never be out there reaching out to a, a uh, an atheist or a Muslim. We've already lost the battle. I, I did a, um, uh, if you subscribe to our profiles, just last month we released a profile on the controversial Christian pastor Rob Bell. Rob Bell released a New York Times bestselling book 
uh, in April of this year called Love Wins. In fact, the book sparked a cover story in Time Magazine. His argument, the book thesis, is that because God is love, ultimately everyone goes to heaven regardless of their religion, what they believe or what they don't believe. And this man is influential to, uh, to just a countless number of Christians and young, uh, young Christian leaders as well. Folks, this is a critical issue. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. But what I'm sharing with you, American spirituality today, it is what it is. This is the the background where God has placed us today. This is the challenge that we're facing. And I'm hoping this brief survey of American spirituality today, that this observation, like it did with Paul 2,000 years ago, is going to lead to motivation, to encourage you to be in the, in the, um, in the uh, process of building bridges of uh, faith in Christ. Now, what happened in Paul's time, back to Acts 17, is it started with the observation. The observation led to motivation. But what happens, and sometimes can happen, it leads him to a confrontation. Now, we don't want to be confrontational. But the truth of the matter is this. The gospel in itself is a gospel of offense. And no matter how loving you are, no matter how articulate you are, no matter how careful you are, people will sometimes become offended by the gospel message. And it led to a confrontation. Look at verse 18. And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Uh-oh, can, can you feel the temperature rising here? Uh-oh, can you feel the tension start to build? So the confrontation starting to develop. Paul, now, now, now this, he wouldn't have come into contact with these Stoics and these Epicureans if he had stayed at the synagogue. But remember, he's out where the people are. And he's come, come across the two dominating philosophical schools of thought at Athens. That was the Epicurean philosophers versus the Stoic philosophers. Two competing schools of thought, the, the titans of that day in, the, in the, uh, uh, the city of Athens. And you have the Epicureans. Now, the Epicureans, they based their philosophy on, a te- on the doctrine that this life is all there was. There's no life after death. There's no resurrection So the Epicurean philosophy was, because there's no life after death, then the purpose of life is to get as much pleasure as you possibly can out of the few short years that you have. Now, the early versions of Epicurean uh, philosophy, when they said gain as much pleasure, they were talking about pleasure from the arts and from uh, being a good citizen of the state and by uh, helping others, benevolence. But Later Epicureans begin to develop the idea that you gain as much pleasure as you can, and you gain that through immorality and through sensual pleasures. And so you had that kind of Epicurean thought as well. So the Epicureans on the one hand, but they were countered by the Stoics. Now the Stoics, they believed that the gods, the pantheon of gods, dictate everything that's going to happen to you. You have no choice in the matter. You can't ask for, a, you have a relationship with these gods. You can't ask for them to help you on something. Everything that happens to you is just going to happen. You must just suffer through it. These were the Epicureans. The Epicurean, uh, the Stoics. You had the Stoics and the Epicureans. Well, both of them are confrontational with Paul. What does this babbler want to say? Verse 18, further down. Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Apparently, there was a misunderstanding. Some people that heard Paul, and maybe they heard on the periphery, maybe they weren't really 
directly in the conversation, but they thought that the Apostle Paul was promoting two gods they had never heard of before. A god named Yeshua, Jesus, and another goddess by the name of Anastasis. Well, Anastasis is merely the Greek word for resurrection. He wasn't promoting two deities. He was talking about the true God, Jesus, who had died and rose from the dead bodily. But they misunderstood. The principle that we see here in the scriptures is sometimes people are going to misunderstand us. Even the Apostle Paul is going to be misunderstood. And sometimes confrontations will develop. We don't want to be confrontational, but mark it down, sometimes it's going to happen. Our job is to try to diffuse that. Without compromising the message of the Word of God, our job is to try to, to cross that bridge, to build that bridge, to be able to, to do that. And that's exactly what Paul's going to do. It says, um, verse 19, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming. So they brought him to the Areopagus. This is also known as Mars Hill. You can go to Athens today and see it. Huge amphitheater. Uh, uh, basically, it's a place in which historically very important uh, in Greek history. This is the place where, at one point, the Supreme Court of the day would meet. In fact, interestingly, some 450 years earlier, Socrates was brought to the same spot, brought up on charges for preaching unknown gods, among other charges. So Socrates was there in the past. Now Paul's there. Now you need to understand Paul is not on trial. He's being there. He's being brought before the philosophers and he's given an opportunity to share what he believes. What an opportunity. Could you imagine that? Let's let's put this in perspective. What if you got a a summons from a a, a Senate Senate select subcommittee to come to Washington, D.C., and this Senate committee, they want to hear what you believe and why you believe it. What an opportunity. Or let's say this way. Let's say say that the philosophy department at Duke wants you to come to the faculty meeting, and they want you to share why you believe the things you believe. can be intimidating, but what an opportunity. It goes on to say, verse 20, For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. We want to know what you're talking about. Now, the, the commentaries are divided over this. Did they really want to know? Is this a sincere request or an insincere request? Were they really curious to know what Paul was teaching or was this a trap? Did they really just want to have an occasion to be able to ridicule him or belittle him? They're already calling him an idle babbler, a seed picker is basically what the, what the term means. And so now, are they sincere? Now, I don't know that I know the answer to that question, but I think to Paul it wouldn't matter. Because the way Paul was as a bridge builder, it didn't matter. Whether Paul was at, before the, before the, um, at the synagogue, before the Jews, whether he was before dignitaries, Felix or Festus or Agrippa, whether he was at the, uh, at the gates of the city, whether he was chained before, between two Roman guards, whatever his position was, He used the opportunity to share the gospel. It says in verse 21, Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Wow, what a place. But they're they're about to hear something new. So it started with an observation. The observation became confrontational, led to a confrontation. But now it goes on to a proclamation. Paul's going to get his chance. Here's his hour. He's got his opportunity. Here's the proclamation. Now, here's where we're going to gain some insight. How did Paul proclaim? Well, what we're going to see Paul do 
is Paul is going to want to, to begin with doctrines that unite. He's going to try to find something in common with these pagan people. He's going to try to find something that unites them, something that they have in common, doctrines that unite. Now, this would be, of course, easier to do at the synagogue. But he's not at the synagogue. He's at the Areopagus. So what is he going to do? Well, verse 22, he begins with doctrines that unite. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe, starts with an observation, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Hey, here's something we have in common. You're religious, I'm religious. I see you're very religious. Here's something, he's starting with doctrines that unite. Now, some translations translate this, I perceive that you are too superstitious. And some have misunderstood thinking that Paul was trying to attack them or be pejorative. No, no, Paul's trying to find common ground here. He's trying to find something we agree on. I perceive, I see that you are very religious. You know, you know how we would say that today? We might say it this way. I sense that you're a spiritual person. In fact, here's some homework for you. You ready for your homework assignment? Write this down. Between now and next Sunday, I want you to ask someone at work or a student, ask someone at school or someone at the Starbucks, say, do you, let me ask you something. Do you mind? Do you consider yourself to be a spiritual person? You'd be amazed where that question can lead you. Do you find yourself to be a spiritual person? Or can you tell me about your spirituality? What's important to you spiritually? You would be surprised how God opens that kind of door. Do that as a homework assignment. Well, Paul's trying to do that, find something in common. He says, for while I was passing through and examining, there's his observation, examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, this is fascinating Apparently, centuries earlier, there had been a pestilence in Athens. People were dying unexpectedly. Now, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the Athenian of that day, their worldview. From what they saw, they thought people were dying. They must have offended one of the gods. So the solution, you need to make a sacrifice. You need a sacrifice to the offended uh, deity. So they built an altar, apparently, to the god Zeus and made an offering to Zeus, but people continued to die. They reasoned, it must have been a different God we offended. So they made a, a, an altar to Apollo, son of Zeus, and made a, a, an offering to Apollo. People continued to die. So th- to make a long story short, they go down the whole list. Aphrodite, they go down the whole list. Finally, they exhaust the entire pantheon of gods that live on Mount Olympus. People continue to die. And someone reasoned, apparently, hey, there must be a God not on the list. We must have left off one. There must be an unknown God. So they actually built shrines or altars to inscribe to the unknown God, made sacrifices to that God. And apparently all these centuries later, some of those shrines still exist. So Paul, because he was observing the culture, he noticed that and thought, here's something that I can use. And he says to them, see, I noticed that even you acknowledge there might be a God you don't know about. That's the one I'm here to tell you about, that unknown God. So Paul was observant enough he could use that, get their interest. So he starts with doctrines that unite, but this is extremely important. He doesn't end with doctrines that unite. Now, the tendency sometimes is we have a temptation that we want to only talk about things we agree on. No, you start there, but you don't end there. You begin with doctrines that, that unite, but you continue with doctrines that divide. 
where are the differences between what we believe and what you believe? You don't just stay here. In fact, if you stay on doctrines that unite, you're not building a bridge. You're erecting a monument. To build a bridge, you've got to continue on. And Paul does that. He continues with doctrines that divide. Verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he's the Lord of, he's talking about the unknown God they don't know about. Since he's the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Whoa, now you don't understand how countercultural this is to Athens. This is Athens. This is the temple capital. In fact, you could go there today. And at the Acropolis, you can see the Parthenon. You can see the, the ruins of the temple. This is the temple capital. They, they, they were proud of their temples. The gods needed temples. You can go there today and see the ruins at the Parthenon. You can see the ruins of the temple of Nike. That would be the tennis shoe goddess. You've got, no, no, they have all the different, you can go there today. And here Paul's saying, oh, the true God, the unknown God, doesn't require a temple. You could have knocked them over with a feather. This is, this is a doctrine that divides. He goes on to say, verse 25, nor is he, the, the true God, nor is he served with human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life, uh, gives to all people life and breath, notice the breath, and all things. So here's what he's saying is, the true God, the unknown God, we don't make him, he makes us. Now see, the gods they were used to were made out of either stone or some are silver, or some are made out of gold. It was the idols. And human hands fashioned the idols. The idols needed somebody to make them. What he's saying is, the God I'm talking about, exact opposite. He's the one who made you. You didn't make him, he made you. And the idols that you are talking about, the gods, they don't breathe, but he not only, he gave you the breath that you breathe. And he says in verse 26, and he, from one man, talking about Adam, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Now, this is extremely important. Look at this last part of verse 26. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Now, Paul is saying that God has, in his sovereignty, has predetermined for every human being two things. Chronology and geography. God has determined when you would be born, the time, chronology, but also God has predetermined through his sovereignty where you would be born, geography. Why are you here? Because God ordained it, because God determined. Now, this addresses one of the big uh, questions that will often come up as you're building bridges in evangelism. What about those who have never heard about Jesus? The argument is they were born at the wrong place and didn't get to hear about Jesus, the wrong country. Or maybe they were born at the wrong time, wrong place or wrong time. Now, the scriptures never fully answer that question. The, the scriptures are clear that Jesus is the only way. And the scriptures are very clear that a sovereign God chose where you would be born and when you would be born, that no one can ever say that I was born at the wrong place or I would be seeking God. I would have, I would have sought after God, but I was born in the wrong generation. I should have been born in the 1800s and not in the, in, in the, in the uh, 20th century. You'll never be able to stand before God. God puts you where you are and when you would be born. Why? Look at verse 27. That they would seek God. You would never seek God any more in a different place. It's a miracle when a sovereign God touches someone's life with the gospel message. And God is not limited geographically. God is not limited chronologically. And so God can reach you no matter where you are. It says, um, verse 27, 
that they would seek God if perhaps they may grope for him. You have the, the idea of a, someone in a dark room looking for a light switch, groping for a light switch, that they may grope for him and find him, though he, look at this, he is not far from each one of us. God is, um, uh, is uh, omnipresent. God is just as close to somebody in China as he is in the United States. God is sovereign. And God chooses those things. And God, can, God is not limited by geography or by chronology. And so that, that whole issue is addressed right here. Verse 29, being then the children of God, I'm sorry, verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we, are also, we also are his children. Now, it's fascinating, verse 28, Paul's not quoting from Isaiah. Nor is he quoting from Deuteronomy. Why? Because this isn't the synagogue. This is the Areopagus. People, they don't believe the Old Testament. So he is a student of his culture. He studied enough. He's actually able to quote their philosophers. So he's quoting two different philosophers. He's quoting the the, uh, Epimendes of Crete. And he's also quoting a third century BC uh, Stoic philosopher by the name of Aratus. Now, the, the citation he's quoting actually comes from a hymn Aratus wrote, and the title of Aratus, the hymn of Aratus is Hymn to Zeus. He's actually quoting a pagan songbook, a hymn to Zeus. Now, don't misunderstand Paul. Paul's not saying he believes in Zeus. He's not trying to say that he believes in Greek mythology. But what he's saying is this. He's studied the culture enough he can actually quote some of their own things. Isn't it something when you're talking to a Mormon and you can quote something from the Book of Mormon that they were not aware of or had not made an application? Or maybe a Muslim and you're talking about something that's in their Quran and you ask a question about it. Paul's doing the same thing here because he observed the culture. And he makes an application. If your own poets, your own philosophers have said that we're the children of God and we're the image of God, then my question is this. Are you then stone or silver? Oh, oh no, you're made out of gold, aren't you? See, Paul's point is, if we're made in the image of God, if we're children of God, wouldn't God be more like us and less like one of those idols that we're worshiping? He says that they're worshiping. He says this, verse 29, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Great reasoning here. If your own poets have said this, let's think through this. Wouldn't God be more like alive and not inanimate? If we're in the image of God, wouldn't, wouldn't God be more like us, a real being? and not, a, not something created out of stone or out of silver. I'm reminded of the story that's told by the Christian apologist, Ravi Zacharias. He tells the story of a young man who had become a Christian, but his whole culture was in the uh, polytheism and the worship of idols. And his own father was an idol worshiper, and the Christian son and father would have long d- dialogues and discussions. And the two prized possessions of the father of the household were two deities, two idols that was in the family that uh, lived in the family shrine. So after long discussions, one day the father was away on a journey, and the Christian young man hit on an idea. So he went into the family shrine, and he took a big metal rod. He walked to one of the two idols made out of stone. He walked up the idol and just beat the idol into pieces into, and, and just to rubble, just destroyed that idol. Then he took that metal rod, walked across the room, and put the rod into the hands of the other idol. 
Don't say anything. Now, the dad comes back, obviously upset. He comes in and finds this very expensive idol has been destroyed. He calls his son, my son, what have you done? I cannot believe, what have you done? And the son said, why look at me? Look who's holding the stick. Of course, the father said, well, that's just stone. That could not have done this. This is what Paul's trying to say. If we're in the image of God as your own poets have said, think, think, connect the dots. Think through this. And so it started with an observation. It led to a confrontation, but Paul has the opportunity to make this proclamation, and then he closes out with the invitation. Verse 30, the invitation. Therefore, Paul says, having overlooked the time of ignorance. Let me say this on the side. He's not talking about their IQ or intelligence. He means by ignorance of not knowing about the true God, a time of not knowing. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Now, here's the scriptural principle. God in, his, uh, God in his grace, in his common grace, blesses people and allows them to exist even when they don't know him. But the time comes when you do know the truth about who God is. And that's the time the scriptures tell us that God is calling on us to repent. Repent means a change of direction. You're going this way in a direction in your life, and you come to a realization. And the reason why is because God is sovereignly doing something doing something in your mind, doing something in your heart, and you realize you're, you're not really worshiping the true God. You're not following God, really. Not really. No, you're not. Because you're really following a false God. Now, none of us in the room probably have ever followed Apollos or Aphrodite or Zeus, but we do have our idols, don't we? Some of us, that, that God is money. For some of that God, there's an addiction in our life, and that, that has become our God that addiction. For some of us, it's power. For some of us, I tell you what, for some of us, our deity, we look in the mirror every day and we see the God of our life. It's ourselves. And we come to a realization where we realize that's not true. That's not right. And we repent. That means we stop. We have a change of direction. We turn away from whatever we were following and we put our faith and trust in God. And the scriptures tell us God calls us to do that. God's calling some of us right now to have a time of of really getting honest with ourselves. Today's the day to repent. It's true for the non-believer. It's true for the Christian. There's times in our lives where God leads us to a position to understand that there are areas when we call Jesus Lord, when he's really not Lord of this area of our lives. What does God say? He calls all people everywhere to repent. And he says, uh, verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world, in righteousness through a man who is he, he is appointed, talking about Jesus, having furnished proof, look at the proof, to all men by raising him from the dead. One of the most powerful apologetics, this is going to come up this evening. One of the ways it separates Christianity from all the other religions is the evidence of a resurrected Savior. And this separates, Buddhism can't say this, Islam certainly cannot say this, Jesus rose victoriously from the dead. Now, put, you have to understand Athens. Do you understand how countercultural this is? This is a slap in the face. You have to understand, the, the entire Epicurean philosophy was based on the fact there can't be a resurrection. He's talking about Jesus raised from the dead. Our whole philosophy would be wrong if there's life after death. And the Stoics certainly didn't believe in a physical resurrection from the dead. So what happened to the, to the response to the invitation? Verse 32, 
Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Well, now we know why. This is, this is totally, this is a doctrine that divides. This is totally different than everything they've ever believed. But others said, most fascinating, others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So apparently, maybe God's beginning to touch the lives of some. They're, they're curious. They want to know more. Verse 33, so Paul went out of their midst, but... Some men joined him and believed. That afternoon at the Areopagus in Athens, there were three responses. Those same three responses we're going to have tomorrow when we're at the workplace, if we're building bridges at the, at the university or at the high school, if we're, if we're sharing our faith with a family member, we're going to find those same three responses uh, as we are building bridges. First of all, A in your outline, there's denunciation. Some began to sneer. Not everybody's going to accept our message. It was true for Paul. It's going to be true for us. B, procrastination. Some are going to say, we shall hear you again. I'm interested, but not, not enough to make any kind of commitment. I'll hear you again. Interestingly, there's no record of Paul ever returning to the Areopagus. Thirdly, there's also regeneration. So you have denunciation, procrastination, but also regeneration. Some were born again. Some had their sins forgiven. Some received eternal life. It says, um, among whom also, it names some of them, Dionysius, the Areopagus, one of the officials of the, Areo- of the Areopagus actually followed after Paul, Dionysius. Uh, he later became the bishop of the Church of Athens, according to church history, and was martyred for his faith. A woman was also amongst the party, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some reject, some procrastinate, but some receive. I want to encourage you to make a commitment that we're going to be about the business of building bridges, that we're going to take that effort to take those stepping stones and place them in front of someone that we know that God's placed in our lives in our sphere of influence, that they may also see the glory of the gospel of the resurrected Son of Jesus, and they may trust Christ as their Savior. Let's pray. Father, again, we want to thank you for the truth of your word. Help us to know your word so thoroughly that we might be able to uh, be guarded against any kind of false teaching. Help us to also love those who have gone down a wrong spiritual path, to make a commitment to be a kind of person that they need to hear, that we can share the gospel in a way their ears can understand and that we might see family members, that we might see friends at work at school, students that we know at school, that we might see people that we care about come to know your son Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We trust you for that and ask you in Jesus' name.